Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your host, Joe Rowles. Welcome back to another episode of Cover 2 Broncos. I am Joe Rowles, and today I am fortunate enough to get to talk to the one and only Tate Seth. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, talk about the Broncos with you. So, if you guys don't follow him on Twitter, you have to. You can find him at uh, Tej FB Analytics on Twitter. And and I got to say, like, again, one of my favorite things about the offseason is kind of like I get myopic. Like during the season, I basically start to focus on the Broncos opponents, the Broncos. And then, like I kind of like lose sight of a lot of other stuff because you kind of have to you zero in. Um, So in the offseason, it's kind of nice to like take a step back and kind of just like look at football as a whole. And like, mm-hmm. that's, that's one of the ways I like stumbled across your account. Um, and when I first stumbled across your account, your account was a uh, Michigan football analytics mm-hmm. and spoil Like for those listening, you don't already know this. I'm actually from Michigan. So immediately I was like, Hey, and then also yeah, your, your graphs are phenomenal. Like period. Like the data is awesome. And so basically every time you were sharing something, I was learning something and then you switched uh, to your name. Um, mm-hmm. and then also kind of around along the same lines, like during that period, it's, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. Like you picked up a gig with PFF. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, what is Michigan football analytics? Just because like, I didn't know about it until I saw your account this summer. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Michigan Football Analytics Society is the club that I'm a part of uh, at school. I go to the University of Michigan, um, and I just finished my sophomore year there. So we have this club, which is like 15 to 25 of us. We meet uh, once a week. We just talk about football analytics and stuff like that. And so my freshman year, uh, we were discussing starting a Twitter account for the club to kind of show like what the club does and, and kind of grow our brand and stuff like that. And so the, I, I ran the Twitter account and, um, and so then, yeah, the Twitter account started to grow and then we were able to get, uh, three of the members, including me, were able to get like work in football analytics this summer, like different types of internships and stuff like that. So that's why I made the name switch is I felt like the Michigan football analytics society, uh, brand had grown enough to where members were starting to get opportunities in the football analytics world. So since it was it was basically my account at that point, I was doing all the tweeting. I'm sure it was a little bit weird for people to see like actual personal tweets come from like a club account. I I just made the switch to my name and put my uh, face on it and stuff like that. And and again, go follow it, guys, because I mean, because on top of the actual like when I first stumbled upon it, like you put out a lot of content, like period, mm -hmm. like it's admirable. Like I like kudos. I I hope you sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I do enjoy making these graphs just because it's always something that I'm interested in. Like, I don't, I don't just make random graphs. If, if I think of something, um, you know, most of the time it'll be even when I'm away from my computer, I'll like make a mental note of it, come back, make that graph. And then I'm like, well, I already have the graph here. Might as well post it on Twitter and other people can learn from it too. I can have conversations with people about the graphs and they can expand like my thought process about uh, making these graphs. Like I've, I've made many mistakes on my graphs um, using like the wrong metric or uh, different types of things. And when people let me know, and so it, it helps me improve for like my actual work at, at pro football focus and stuff like that. Definitely. And so when I, when I, when you first made the switch, I went and looked cause like, first of all, congrats on the job with PFF. Uh, but you I did. saw, I saw you were P uh, R and D. And again, like, for those of us, like I follow football, I do foot, I do film and I like, obviously I, I really like analytics. I'm not, I don't make a lot of graphs, uh, but I like to consume them. Um, and I think it makes like the information really accessible. Um, but I, I like R and D to me, like I immediately picture like the dark Knight. Uh, <laughs> and like, I assume you're not making the Batmobile for like Sam Monson or like anything like that. What, uh, what all, what all do you do? If if we definitely made a Batmobile for Sam Monson, he would drive that around Cincinnati like crazy. But no, we're uh, we're the research and development department. Um, the the head of the R and D department is Eric Eager, who has done a lot of work for PFF. Uh, he's been there for a couple of years now, and so um, I work under him. And we basically develop new metrics and do research on topics that haven't been explored yet in football. Um, so like for example the uh, one that I did a couple of weeks ago on what influences yards after the catch. Can we predict how many yards after the catch will happen before the receiver even gets the ball in his hand? So like, is the, how open is the receiver? Did the receiver get an accurate throw, which we'll get through with uh, Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke. And then, you know, just, just stuff like that is like the type of metrics we make. And then those either get sent out to teams or they get posted as an article on the website. So NFL teams are already seeing your work. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. really cool. Like that's really, really cool. So, um, and one, one, one article, I want to start here just because 
it, it kind of like zooming back and then back in, if that makes sense. Uh, one of the metrics that you first came out with that was a couple months ago, I think now was whale. Um, and the way, and again, like correct me if I'm wrong, because like, again, this might be a really simplistic way that I understood whale is, uh, so first of all, whale takes each player's projected wins above replacement, um, or their war as, as it's described the acronym for it for each game of the season and then calculates the war lost due to injury based on a player's status on the injury report. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, in the way, again, the way I understood it when I first kind of came across it. So for years, I have kept up with uh, football outsiders, adjusted games lost. And one of the complaints I've always had about adjusted games lost is it doesn't really capture the value of the players. Like, yes, they might be starters, mm-hmm. but, and again, like not to, to, not to throw any sort of shade on somebody, but if Lloyd Cushenberry had gotten hurt last year, he was one of the worst centers in football. So it probably mm-hmm. didn't hurt the Broncos as much as if, for example, Von Miller got hurt. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was brilliant. Um, and honestly, like one of the things I really like about it is it you showed off, like it shows how good a player was. Um, but then also it kind of maps out to what what they're worth in terms of wins to the team. Uh one and again, so am, am I kind of like on the money with it? Yeah, yeah, you explained that perfectly. Yeah, so basically, what it does is, yeah, like you mentioned, Football Outsiders was only just accounting one game lost for each starter that was injured. And yeah, we felt like that was uh, a good start, but not necessarily the right way to go about it because Dak Prescott getting injured last year for the Cowboys meant a lot more than um, their offensive line getting hurt. Um, just because you know he's you know he's like a top 10 12 quarterback so yeah we we definitely want to adjust for how valuable the person that's getting injured is to their team so yeah the the example with von miller is perfect because um von miller him being out basically the whole year last year lost the broncos about half a game in war so basically like you can if you're thinking about like the um vegas like implied market win total Let's say if they if they set the Broncos at seven and a half, Von Miller being out will would move them down to seven, um, just because he's he's worth half a game. That showed by him not being there and stuff. And is that pretty typical for a player like Von Miller to be worth about half a game by himself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're a star player at a premium position, you're going to be worth uh, half a game. Like today, we were talking about Kenny Galladay who the, uh, the Broncos play in, in week one, his, his hamstring injury, like if he's out for the year, which he probably won't be, but you never know with these injuries, like it would be worth half a game to the, uh, to the Giants. And so is that about what the cap is for premium positions that are not quarterback is about half a game, do you think? Or like, are there players that are worth more than that? <laughs> Yeah, so for example, the um the player, the the non-quarterback that was worth the most last year was Devontae Adams, who was worth about one win flat, just under it. So if he were to be injured the whole year for the Packers this year, that's how much it would it would count to them basically. Cool. Um and so and I know you and I have discussed this a little bit before we, we copped on. Um so originally when I saw the article, I saw that uh Broncos had 31 snaps between Von Miller, Court, and Sutton. And I know, and again, we've talked about this a little bit. And then they lost corners, defensive linemen, and then Drew Locke missed games. Um, 
I know after we talked, you told me that they were the third most, like the, the team that lost the third most on whale. Mm-hmm. Yes. Third. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, like assuming, let's say they were healthy, then how many wins do you think would have been like a fair estimate for what they could have produced last year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we ended up finding was that they're, um, a team's whale for the season was very correlated to what they did compared to what the Vegas markets expected them to before the season. So if we take like the 49ers who were the most injured team in the NFL last year, um, they had a high projected win total coming off their Super Bowl run. And since they lost so much in injuries, they lost almost three games in injuries. And then they went under their Vegas win total by four wins. Uh, so, so we found that, that it, it happened a lot too. So then the, um, the Broncos went under their win total by two wins last year and they, and they lost about, uh, they lost about 1.5 games in whale. So they could have been like a seven and nine, uh, eight and eight team if they were healthier, but they just, they just got hit with more injuries than almost anyone last year. So selfishly, that makes me feel really good because before the season started, I was predicting that the Broncos would win between seven and nine games. Obviously that's a wide enough spectrum that I would have, you know, been safe, but I feel a little (laughs) bit better because, well, the thing is like considering all the injuries. And again, this might be like the, the fan, you know, the fan in me, I thought it was impressive that they came out with five wins. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when whenever you lose your, you know, your best edge rusher who's who's one of the best in the NFL and you lose your best wide receiver on top of that, it's it's just really really tough to win games in the NFL. Um and so yeah, the, it was yeah, it's it's you know, they they are getting pieces back on on defense this year and and then getting Sutton back is definitely a reason for optimism to get up to that uh 7-8 win range. So one thing I always learned, or not always, but one thing I learned when I was going through adjusted games lost a couple years ago is this idea that like a team that tends to be, because injury luck is random um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You can't predict it. Uh, but typically, if a team is very, very banged up or on the vice versa, if a team is very, very healthy, they tend to kind of regress back towards the mean the next year just because they're probably not as lucky, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um one thing that makes me kind of curious about that with the Broncos, first of all, like when I first saw that, my first thought is like the Broncos almost have to be healthier this year. Like they had 10 corners last year. That that probably won't happen again. Mm-hmm. But, but, and again, I don't know how much you've looked at this, but because the Broncos injuries were so specific to certain groups, I almost wonder if like, like the Broncos might be healthier at corner, but now their offensive line is going to be completely decimated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, injuries are just just completely random um, on a team level. And uh, Urgen has, who who also is at PFF, he's he's looked into a little bit of the position level and and found that it's super hard to predict. Also, there is a slight, uh, there's a slight, there's some slight evidence to support like the injury prone pre- player. Like sometimes they actually do get injured more if they've had those previous injuries and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just we found like no correlation year to year between um, whale in year N versus year N plus one. So yeah, it's, you, you, you should expect the Broncos to be much healthier this year. It, it not necessarily, it doesn't mean like since they were the third most injured last year, they will be the third least injured. 
this year. It just means that they'll just be, they, it'll be, it's, it's really improbable for them to be the third most injured again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I remember, I want to say it was the Eagles. The Eagles had like a, like a two or three year streak where they were very healthy and it was just really mm-hmm. weird. And then all of a sudden they were really injured. So it's yeah. yeah. I'm, 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 I'm hoping obviously like the Broncos are healthier because that would make a huge difference. Also like the depth is, and again, this is true of any team, but the depth is kind of shaky in certain spots. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else with injuries that you've kind of found? Like, you mentioned like the, the injury prone player, um, like how, and I guess, I don't know how to actually kind of like circle back to the question with it. Like Drew Locke, Drew Locke has been hurt both years in the, in his career so far. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that would like classify him as injury prone, but like, do you think it's reasonable to expect like a player who has been hurt like that, even if he's been relatively healthy in college, to then like it's fair to probably expect him to get hurt at some point. Not as again, not rooting for it, but just to yeah. say like it's probably safe to make sure you have a backup because that guy will probably get hurt at some point, especially with a longer season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you you pretty much nailed that. Yeah, just because so he has gotten injured his his first two years, that does make him slightly more likely to get injured this season. But again, it's just all it takes sometimes to get injured is one hit. And you just can't predict when or where those hits will occur, like what types of injuries they'll get. So, but like there's, there's some things quarterbacks can do to stay healthier, like uh, not putting themselves in, in pressure and, you know, like Ben Roethlisberger, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, they've been able to stay so long in the league because they were getting the ball out quickly. And so, you know, Drew Locke takes a little bit to throw. He, he sometimes invites pressure. And so that can put himself in, in harm's way and uh, give himself a higher chance of getting injured. Did you find anything related to age when you were kind of looking into this? Um, and again, like, because again, the common narrative, I guess, is like as a player gets older, like your, your body starts to be, get dinged mm-hmm. up more. And that's one of the reasons why coaches probably give veterans rest days. And I ask in mm-hmm. part because like Vaughn Miller being 32, like it definitely like right now, Fangio is definitely kind of handling him to like try and keep him ready for week one. Does that seem like reasonable? Yeah. I mean, we haven't looked into age yet, but that would definitely be something cool to look into as, as we expand on whale more. Um, but what we did find is that around week 11 and 12 of the NFL season is when injuries really start to skyrocket. So they're, they're pretty stable weeks one through 10. And then as you get into that later half of the season, um, it, it becomes really tough for, for teams to control their injuries. And like, we, we've seen that play out for so many teams, especially on the quarterback level, like they could be having good seasons and their quarterback goes down um, and their, and then their season is, is kind of over and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that's, that's definitely something that is smart of coaches to do is to give players rest days as the season goes on, because it's so tough to stay healthy, healthy late in the year. And so when you're saying around week 11 or week 12, do you mean like around week 11, week 12, and then like, going onwards, like week 13, week 14, like mm-hmm. it's not, it's not like just, and again, for, I think I understood, but just like for our listeners say, it's not just like all of a sudden you hit week 11, all of a sudden there's a ton of injuries and then back to normal afterwards. It starts to accumulate. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry if I didn't explain that. Yeah. Yeah. It's cumulative like weeks, weeks 11 through the end of the season is really when injuries start to pick up. So then a, a late bye week is actually it's advantageous. Mm-hmm. I would assume so. Yeah. Cool. 
Broncos have a late buy, so I'm definitely kind of I've always believed it, so it's it's nice to have some data to kind of back that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of one of the other things you looked at, and again, I this is something I apologize because like I I think I understand it, but I I may very well be way off on some of this stuff. Um, you looked at defense uh, a good bit, and and not only did you look at defense, but you shared a, a bunch of resources that I then tried to nerd out on as best I could. Um. So one of the first things I wanted to pick your brain on is the idea of like a light box, just because Mm -hmm. the Broncos defense under Fangio, they they run out of a too high structure more than almost any team in the league. I want to say the the Staley Rams last year were the only team that did it more. Um, And of course, last year, the Broncos run defense was pretty poor. Uh, Part Mm -hmm. of that in my, and again, based on what I saw both on film and then like when I've dug into the numbers I've seen, it looks like, a big chunk of that was due to the injuries on the defensive line. Um, does that make sense? Or do you think like playing in a light box kind of makes you weaker run defense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, uh, I put out this tweet earlier this week where I kind of said the, um, the defensive coordinator, the defensive play caller with the lowest box count each year. And so 2015 through 2019 was Vangio, uh, which I thought was funny. And then 2020, uh, his his protege, his understudy, Staley, kind of took him over in that aspect. And um, Staley had it a lot easier than Vangio did last year. Like Staley had had Aaron Donald in a in an almost fully healthy defense, while Vangio was dealing with some injuries and and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I haven't actually found any evidence that playing lighter boxes decreases your um, rushing efficiency allowed. But what I have found is that playing these lighter boxes increases your ability to defend the path. So Fangio is kind of ahead of the curve on this being, being a passing mm -hmm. league. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's the weird thing that I've always wondered with defensive coordinators is they want to, they want to be good at run fitting and they put so much emphasis on uh, stopping the run, especially in the first quarter. Um, They'll, they'll stack the box in the first quarter. They really want to stop the run, but it's a passing league now. Uh, you know, Staley and Vangio said some type of this statement multiple times where it's like, you want two on ones in the passing game. You can't defend wide receivers and tight ends with just one on one coverage anymore. They're, they're too good and, and quarterbacks are too good. So you need those two on ones in the passing game where you can bracket receivers and playing those lighter boxes and more nickel and dime allows you to do that. So, and again, I, I, I'm sorry to kind of throw this on you, but then. By that, though, then, like, the idea of running dime is going to leave you really, really susceptible to the running game. It's not really backed up by evidence. Like, that's, like, dime that's, might not be bad. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, it's it's okay to let up. If, you're, if you were going to, you know, stack the box and let up a three-yard run, and you let up a five-yard run instead, that's fine. Like, you you still have the advantage as a defense, but if you're stacking the box and you let up a 40-yard pass, which is where most of these explosive plays come from now is the passing game, like, that really sets your defense back. Mm-hmm. 
And I know that's a really pertinent one for, for Broncos country, just because like all the reports out of camp are kind of pointing to the Broncos are going to start to use a lot more dime now that they have so mm-hmm. many corners. Um, yeah. and, I've, and I've talked to uh, the Denver post, Ryan O'Halloran, and he mentioned like he has doubts that the Broncos are going to run it that much just because he believe like he mentioned that they're going to be susceptible to the running game. And, and I think there's certain running schemes that might be a problem. Um, I think the chiefs running like a, like the, the chiefs running like pin and pull or like any sort of like guard tackle type thing where they're pulling out mm-hmm. might be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they have the personnel, like the Broncos did this to Miami last year in part, uh, to try and beat up on their tight front. Um, mm-hmm. but I think overall, like, and I, and I know I read a PFS, uh, Deontay Lee's article about time too. The numbers don't really back up the idea that the dime is going to make you suddenly start to bleed on the ground all that much. No, and that's the right way to play the Chiefs. You know, the, the Broncos have to play them two times a year. And so when they, you know, the one of the Chiefs' worst offensive performances of last year was in that Broncos game on Sunday night football. I mean, you had the Tyreek Hill where he actually caught it in the end zone, but no one noticed. So, I mean, we'll, we'll just forget about that. But, like, the Broncos were slowing down the Chiefs for the most part of that game. Um, and so that's the right way to do it is, like, Vangio – has the pieces to do it and he has the scheme to slow down the chiefs it's just a matter of if the offense can keep up keep up with them which almost no offense can um but yeah it's it's, it'll definitely be really interesting to see how they deploy those really light boxes against those explosive passing attacks this year well and you kind of just you kind of just mentioned that that's one of the big reasons why i have been so vocal in the fact that fangio deserves like a real chance just because it seems like his defense is the defense best suited to kind of combat the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And now the Chargers are going to be playing that same defense. So we're going to see that four times a year. So we're going to, we're going to have some really good evidence on if it actually works by the end of this season, which I, I think it will. I think these light boxes and having as, you know, having more DBs than, um, than the average team and having less linebackers on the field than the average team is advantageous for the defense, especially when you're playing a team with such an explosive passing attack. And I also, and again, this is not necessarily something we've looked at at all yet. I don't know if you have, but like one of the other reasons why I think it might be smart to start to move this way is just from like a drafting and personnel standpoint, because the college game is so much it's, it's receivers and DBs are coming out at this point. Mm-hmm. So start, mm-hmm. starting to build a defense around the idea of more DBs on the field, it's probably going to be easier to collect talent. I would think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Connor wrote an article for, for PFF where he kind of, he kind of looked at why, um, receivers can't run block anymore. Like they used to back in the, the, like the early and mid two thousands and stuff like that. And yeah, it's just because this college, you know, the spread offense being so prevalent receivers are just going, you know, one-on-ones on, on cornerbacks now. And that's, that's like what the, the popular thing has been for the last couple of years. So there's so much receiver and corner talent coming out of college, which, which makes it easy from a team building perspective for the teams that want to build that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the, one of the other things you looked at, and this is where I'm going to probably sound really dumb because I will admit when I read this article, I got a little bit confused. I think I asked you about it. Some, um, the unique coverage, uh, and again, guys, if you have not checked this out, go check it out. Um, it's a data study on coverage scheme uniqueness for each team. Um, mm-hmm. and what it means for coaching changes. So again, guys listening, go, go look it up. Cause I thought it was awesome. Um, 
the Broncos and the Staley Rams, and again, this will now be the Chargers probably going forward. Uh, you put them in cluster four. And cluster four, and I'm going to quote you, is this cluster is the most unique as teams in this cluster play much more cover four and cover six than the rest of the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've kind of known that the Broncos ran a lot of cover six for a while. I think I slept on how much cover four they're running relative to the rest of the league. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why, like, when, when you shared, you shared a, a link to the kneel down, um, which is a site that uses PFS data and kind of like breaks it down. And when I looked it up, yeah, like the Broncos cover four. I think the, the Staley Rams probably run more cover four than the Broncos, but their cover six mm-hmm. is like significantly more than the NFL as a whole, like as mm-hmm. you know, the average NFL team. Mm-hmm. What a like what stood out to you kind of looking at this from like a uniqueness standpoint that like really makes like the cluster four teams like so different other than like like what I just said, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What makes the cluster four uh defenses so different and what I really like about them and why I think it's the future of NFL defenses is the split safety looks. So, you know, we have the um Legion of Boom the Seahawks from like 2012 until 2015, uh, popularizing the the cover three loaded box scheme where they were putting Cam Chancellor into the box and playing cover three that way. But this is like basically the opposite of that. So if you look at like the uh, the clustering graph, the Seahawks are in the bottom of the graph and the Vangio um, and Staley kind of like tree, I'll call it, are at the top of the graph because they're they're playing like almost opposite coverages. Cover four, cover six are just having those two split safeties at the top, allowing you to not get beat. While the cover three is more about you know defending the the shorter mid range passes, uh, not letting slants go, you know, not letting out routes and and ins and, and stuff like that go. But yeah, like I like I've mentioned already, like it's it's an explosive passing league now, and that's where teams uh, score is based on these explosive passes and the split safety looks are an attempt by Vangio and Staley to combat that. And so one of the other, and again, like looking at the graph and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like some of the other teams that are considered part of cluster four was the bears, uh, the Colts and the Cowboys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are they also running more split safety than like other teams in the league or were they just running more cover six? Yeah. Yeah. Those teams were, um, we're not as heavy on the cover four and cover six as the um, the Broncos, Bears, and Rams were last year because they're they're a little bit more concentrated with the cover three teams like okay. the um, yep. like yeah like the Seahawks and, and football team. But yeah, so that's that's what made uh, Vangio and Staley's defense so unique last year was that they were just so far different from what other NFL teams were doing yeah. that it was it was tough for defenses to prepare or sorry. For offenses to prepare for playing the Rams, uh, especially since they were all healthy, and I'm sure it would have been the same way if the Broncos stayed healthy too. Cool. And then, and again, one of the other things I found from what you were sharing with me before we came on and recorded was the idea that uh, you shared uh, 538's article about how when teams stack the box, they're basically just begging teams to pass on them. Whereas it's kind of, and this has come up in conversations I've had with other coaches who have you know studied the Rams and the Broncos. The Broncos approach is the opposite. Like being in a light box, they're trying to kind of beg teams to run on them in hopes that like you're not going to be as efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's what um 
that's what Andy Reid kind of did against the Texans and the Bills last year was Texans and the Bills deployed really light boxes and they were like, run on us. Like, like we, we are so scared of your passing game. Like you can run on us and like, we'll just, we'll just keep letting you get those five, six yard carries. And so that's just kind of what happened in those games. And, you know, the, the, the Texans and Bills offenses didn't have the best days, but that definitely seems like the way to slow down these explosive passing teams is to just allow them to run on you um, by, by playing those lighter boxes. Yeah. And like, and like you said, the, and, and I've looked at other stuff with this before is that basically the teams that are generating a lot of chunk plays are the teams that tend to be in the playoffs. So it makes sense to try and prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of pivot, like, I know this is kind of a weird pivot, but so then the, the question that like, cause I like the Fangio defense. And I think obviously you, it sounds like you do as well. The question then obviously is, is the offense going to be good enough? Um, and that's kind of yeah. like for those, you know, dear listeners at this point, this might be where you might want to kind of like listen with one ear because it might sound a little bleak. The hope seems to be Drew Locke. <laughs> Um, yeah, like that that's like Broncos country. George Payton seems to have put a lot of eggs in the basket of, well, Drew Locke's going to be a historical outlier. Um, and I've talked to you about this before me and a colleague, uh, Joe Mahoney from Mile High Report, and he did most of the work. I'll, I'll admit, like I, I kind of just wrote his coattails, but we went back and looked at every quarterback who has made, uh, 16 starts dating back to 2000. And then we looked at the, mm-hmm. the next block of 16 starts and then the next block of 16 starts in hopes that like kind of started to identify what's a realistic like jump from where Locke is 18 starts into his career. And we looked at passer rating. And since I first discussed it with you, you've like broken it down on a level that's like far more like you actually really dug into it. Uh, mm-hmm. so I have to add, like, is there any like statistical evidence that Drew Locke is going to make a jump? Are we hoping for him to be an outlier? Okay, so last year, uh, what happened was Josh Allen broke out at a rate that we've almost never seen in NFL history before. Um, at least if you if you use like the the PFF era, which we started tracking players in in two thousand six, like no one has taken that big of a jump between their first two seasons and then the rest of their career. Um, what I found basically is that quarterbacks uh so i use i use expected points added per play for this um for this study basically and so one second for those of us that are dumb can you try and give us like a simple explanation for what epa is sure yeah so what what epa does basically is it gives the offense an expected amount of points based on their down uh yards from the sticks yards from the goal line and then how much time is remaining in the half. So if you have a first and 10 um, at your own 25, like a a kickoff just happened, you can be expected like 1.8 points on that drive or something. I don't know if that's the exact number, but that's just, uh, I think it's somewhere around there. And then, you know, if, if you have a six yard gain on that first and 10, and let's say you're, you're now expected two points on that drive, your EPA for that play was 0.2 because you're uh, you're you're now expected to and you were expected 1.8 before the play. Awesome. And yeah. So no, oh, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I yeah. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, um, if if you look at a quarterback's first two years in the league and then the rest of their career, 
on average, they don't improve in, in EPA per play. It's, it's 0, 0.00 exactly, um, which, which I thought was interesting. And so the first thing I think of when I hear that is, well, Drew Locke only played 18 games because of injury and because he sat behind. Well, injury caused him to sit behind Joe Flacco and then Brandon Allen. Mm-hmm. Does that does that mean like does that like sample size mean that he's actually only entering year two, quote unquote? Or is he still like this was the first two years? Yeah, it it, it still meant that uh, this was the first. I just used. Um, whether or not they've thrown 200 passes in their first two years, I felt like that was a pretty good cutoff to get enough sample size and enough feeling about their career. But like, there's other examples of like Cody Kessler and TJ Yates. They barely made the the 200 pass requirement that I used um, for their first two years, and they actually got worse for the rest of their career after that. They didn't even they didn't play that much, which is why. Um, which is why like they get, they got worse and stuff, but yeah, it, it was, so I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that Drew Locke's um, lack of playing time is more of a reason that he could break out. Do you, and again, I don't know if you've looked at this at all. And so I apologize if you haven't, does the idea that they switched coordinators make any sort of difference? Like, cause it, like your sample size is big enough that you're probably counting for other quarterbacks who've gone through that or no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, I, I looked at, um, I looked at, let me see here. Yeah. I looked at 40 quarterbacks. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sure some of them switched coordinators, but only 23% of quarterbacks actually break out. And that, that list includes um, Josh Allen, who I mentioned earlier, Baker Mayfield, Matthew Stafford, Kirk Cousins, uh, Jared Goff and Derek Carr. Mm-hmm. And so those are quarterbacks, you know, Jared Goff had the worst uh, rookie season of, of all time, basically, in, in this era that we're looking at. And so then when he did change coordinators going from Jeff Fisher's regime to Sean McVay's regime, he was able to increase his, his EPA per play. But um, it, it, it just doesn't happen often. Yeah. Uh, did you find any sort of like, is there anything that those quarterbacks seem to have in common? that you notice? Yeah. So the, the one reason for optimism for, for Drew Locke is that the, we, we've done a lot of studies at PFF that has found that when you're kept clean, your um, performance when kept clean is much more stable year to year than your performance under pressure. And it makes sense when you think about it intuitively, there's a lot of um, things that need to happen for you to be under pressure. And then it's just, it's not judging your, your pure passing ability when you're under pressure. Plus it's a smaller sample size, which smaller sample sizes usually means more unstable. So the reason for optimism for Drew Locke is last year, he was 16th in the NFL with his clean passing grade. So uh, exactly average, but he was last in the league when he was under pressure. So if he's able to, you know, have some positive regression under pressure, he could be an average or um, maybe even slightly above average quarterback this year, just because he has that clean pocket grade that is, is very stable. And so kind of a question I have off of that then is it, it may, there's a couple parts to it. My understanding has always been, again, like this is oversimplistic, but I always kind of looked at like sacks are a QB stat, like 
quarterbacks mm-hmm. have more control over if they're going to get sacked or not than probably any other player on the field. Is is that correct or am that's I? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Is, do you think it's like similar with pressure or is there like like the Broncos didn't really invest much in their offensive line? Uh, so like my first thought, like, and I know I think listeners will probably think this too. Well, if Drew Locke is really good when he's not under pressure, the Broncos should just make sure they have a brick wall in front of him so no one can get to him. Yeah, that's that's um, true to an extent. I mean, it yeah, pressures are also a quarterback stat. When uh, when a quarterback switches teams, their pressure rate stays pretty stable, even though they're they're changing every single offensive lineman, uh, which is really interesting. So yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely a quarterback stat. So yeah, so Drew Locke is inviting some of that pressure in on his own. But the yeah, like the the reason it's unstable is because like the pressure plays are when plays break down and like yeah. wide receivers can start running free and stuff like that. And so like, that's just a lot of stuff that needs to happen. A clean pocket pass is usually like a first or second read that a quarterback is, is pulling off. So for Drew Locke to get better at like, so, so for Drew Locke to make more plays without being under pressure, he probably needs to do a better job of adjusting his protections to like, keep himself safe, mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. be able to find his hots faster. And the Broncos have to do a better job of whoever the first or second read is. They have to be able to get open more often. So he doesn't have to do schoolyard bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, if, yeah. And you know, if you watch Drew Locke, which you watch all the games, um, he, it, he, he looks like he has trouble understanding what defenses are doing, which is okay. Cause he's a young quarterback, you know, Josh Allen got better at it this past year, but it's, it's still a little bit worrisome to see him not understand like the the um the Panthers game for example that um strip sack fumble that turned into almost a touchdown like that was Drew Locke not understanding that they were going to do a double a gap blitz and so they they just came right up the middle he didn't notice that he tried to make a play they they sacked him the ball came out and they almost returned it um and so it's 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 just like the little things like that if he can if he can control his pressure rate and and, you know, and, and improve a little bit when he actually does get pressured, he could have the workings of an average quarterback, but I just, I don't know if he has those tools in him to do that. Yeah, that's fair. So that kind of, I'm trying to think of anything else that like, I know, cause again, one of the things I try to do, I'm trying to anticipate what I think people will have questions for, uh, you know, off of what mm-hmm. we're talking about. And I think we just kind of addressed them all with Drew Locke. So I'm, if, there, if I'm missing something, dear listener, I apologize. But that's the the hope on my part is that one of the things he worked on with Peyton Manning this offseason reportedly is that mm-hmm. like working on his hot stuff like that. And again, I have no idea if that's going to make the difference. Peyton Manning's worked with a lot of other quarterbacks. So like, we'll see. Um, but that that's kind of like the reason I have hope. Um, obviously, there's two quarterbacks in this competition, though. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater, you already mentioned him a little bit. And honestly, when I read that, it gave me a lot of hope because to me, and again, I guess I'm a Teddy Bridgewater guy. I'm not necessarily trying to be because I do think that like realistically, if Drew Locke makes a jump and is better than Teddy Bridgewater, it's better for the Broncos because Drew Locke's on a rookie contract. If nothing else, the fact he's on a rookie contract for two more years rather than Bridgewater's on a $4 million contract and then he's a free agent. So like from Mm -hmm. a roster building standpoint, it's definitely better if Drew Locke makes the jump. But when I've watched Teddy Bridgewater's tape, when I've looked at all the data and I've tried to look at, you know, as much data as I can to try and fight my own bias with this. Mm-hmm. 
Teddy Bridgewater, at least by the numbers, looks like about a league average quarterback. Yep. Yeah. So the the main question that we really want to answer is, is it better for the Broncos to bank on Teddy Bridgewater's floor or Drew Locke's ceiling? And so Teddy Bridgewater's floor is like the 20th best quarterback in the league. His ceiling is like the 16th best though. Drew Locke's floor is like the worst quarterback in the league, but his ceiling is, you know, borderline top 10 potential. So that's, that's really the the question that the Broncos need to, to, um, to tell themselves and then to to figure out an answer soon uh, by the end of training camp. So yeah, it's, it's, he, he is an average quarterback in the league. I have um, passer wins above average, basically, which uses a team's PFF grades, gives an expected win total based on those grades, um, and then sees if the quarterback won or lost them games. And so Bridgewater was exactly average in that stat. In you know, EPA for, per pass last year, he was pretty much average there too. So So he can give you an average quarterback play where – if you have the number one defense and then all these weapons that the Broncos have accumulated on offense, that's all you might need to make the playoffs. Music to my ears. <laughs> um, the big, so no one kind of going from there. I got to, I'm going to give you the four big narratives that you always are going to hear. And you're, and again, if you're, you're going to be tagged on like this cover two Broncos post, so you'll probably end up seeing a lot of this, but basically the narratives you always hear with Teddy Bridgewater, first of all, and, and again, you addressed one of them already. We know what Teddy Bridgewater is, but Locke can improve. We don't know if Locke mm-hmm. can improve, but theoretically, Locke could be a better player than Teddy Bridgewater is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next That's one true, is... true, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the next one is, obviously, that Teddy Bridgewater can't throw deep and he has a weak arm. See, I, I'm gonna, yeah. I see. I don't believe in that narrative. Does he? Does he like to throw deep? No. Uh, he only, you know, 11% of his passes went over 20 air yards last year, or 16% for Drew Locke. So we're working with, you know, a, a much smaller sample size. But he was the 10th best quarterback in EPA per pass last year, throwing deep. So I don't, I don't know if I, I buy that narrative. Uh, and for my own sake, how? What? What is like? Do you know what league average is? Like, where is Teddy Bridgewater in terms of like his eleven percent, Drew Lock sixteen percent? Like, where does that fall, kind of like compared to other NFL quarterbacks? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, I don't know. I don't have those numbers on me. I was just comparing them to, but yeah. I, 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 think, I think it's around 13, 14% if I had to, uh, if I had to think back to, to when I looked at it last. But yeah, I'd, he he doesn't have the propensity to throw deep as much as an average quarterback, but he's, he 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 can do it fine if he's asked to. I think. And, and I'm not trying to press you on that. I know, like you know, if you mm-hmm. don't have it in front of you, but I just I, again going back to what I've talked about with uh, he's a former NFL quarterback. He looks at quarterbacks quite a bit. Tim Jenkins has mentioned something similar. If it's not that Teddy Bridgewater can't throw deep, 
he just has it like he's he'll take the money right in front of him rather than going for the big shot downfield a lot of times probably yeah. to his own detriment sometimes mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah for sure it's, it's the same thing that Derek Carr struggled with before Gruden came and started making it so like we've seen Carr like cars cars started to throw deep more and like he was one of the best quarterbacks last year when throwing deep um and so it definitely could work for Bridgewater it would just be a little bit tougher since he's he's later in his career and stuff like that but yeah like if if someone's open like if Judy's running open there's there's no reason why uh Bridgewater can't make that throw and uh should make it and so this is like a you know a theoretical off of that Theoretically, if Teddy Bridgewater starts to open up, though, and he can maintain the accuracy, like he could potentially be a halfway decent quarterback, like somewhere between like 16 and 12, maybe. Is that like yeah. kind of the big hole yeah. in this game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would think that. Yeah, I would think that for sure. Um, so like we yeah, so like we have the uh, we have this metric called expected accuracy percentage. And basically what it does is we track at PFF, we track if every throw is as accurate or not. Like, are you leading your receiver? Are you like, are you putting the ball where only your receiver can get it? And so then based on that, different throws are um, different levels of like easiness for accuracy, basically. Um, so if you're, if you're throwing a screen pass, most quarterbacks should be pretty accurate on those screen passes. Um, and then if you're throwing deep, it's much tougher to be accurate, basically. Uh, and so then Bridgewater in from 2019 until now, he's been the highest in the league in expected accuracy. And then he's, he's been exactly at that level for actual accuracy. So he throws an accurate ball on 62% of his passes while Drew Locke throws an accurate ball on 56%. So that's, that's a 6% jump you're getting in accurately placed balls. They're just not going to be as long as, um, as Locke would, would play them. And the thing, and and again, this is like, you can go in circles on this argument, but then with the Broncos supporting cast though, and again, I've talked about this with Seth Galina before, but when you have mm-hmm. Gary Judy and KJ Hamler, who they excel with the ball in their hands, like Jerry mm-hmm. Judy's not a guy you want to try and get the ball. Like you don't want to throw the ball 30 yards to give the ball to Jerry Judy. You're probably better off getting him like 15 yards with room to run. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, the, the more accurate, a th- uh, the throw that a quarterback makes the higher chance that it leads to yards after catch. Uh, so yeah. So if, if, if you're getting your quarterback, yeah, they just, the Broncos just really need someone to steer the boat with the weapons that they have with Judy Hamler, who can be huge yak guys. And then Sutton can, you know, go up and get the ball. And then Fant is, is an all around good tight end, I think. So if, if they can get someone to just steer the boat, and just get that average level of quarterback play that we've been talking about. I think their 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 offense has potential to um, to actually be good, but it's it's just a matter of fact if they um, how much they influence Teddy Bridgewater's game, and even if he starts, I don't even know if he will. Mm-hmm. So I kind of steered off the narrative stuff. So I got, I got to throw the last two at you just so kind of hear what you think about them. So number three is Teddy Bridgewater had eight chances to win a game on the final possession in 2020, and he failed to do so. Does does that yeah. scare you at all? That doesn't scare me at all. Um, you know, he came out and he said that they didn't practice that at all. Um, so so we'll see. I don't even know, I don't know if that's true or not, but like, yeah, it it it's it's fine. Like, it it's just that's just something that's not 
good to judge a quarterback off of. You're picking like the the smallest portion of plays that you can when you're doing fourth quarter less than two minutes. Um, it's it you you should be judging their their whole game. Um, and I think he would be fine if he had to lead a fourth quarter drive. I have a I have a hunch that you're not a QB wins guy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably the biggest Stafford guy uh in on Twitter or whatever and uh he he didn't win many games. So yeah, that I'm not I I like to stay away from QB wins as much as I can. You're in good you're in a friendly confine. Like I it's a it's not a stat. No, and and I want to say and I don't mean to one of the things with the Teddy Bridgewater thing I just threw at you though too. I saw that stat on Twitter a couple weeks ago. I think you may have seen it. The first game I went and looked at, because I went and actually tried to look at all these last possessions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the in the Raiders game, the last possession that Teddy Bridgewater got in that game, I think he had eight seconds left on the clock. In the possession, yeah. in the possession before that, they ran the ball every play. Like he didn't actually touch the ball for the last two drives, basically. So so I'm with you on that. I I just wanted to see what you had to say about it. But the last one, and again, this is the one I see a lot. This is actually one of the reasons why people believe Gardner Minshew is better than Teddy Bridgewater. And and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but Teddy Bridgewater has never thrown for more than 15 touchdowns in a season. So he's going to hurt the Broncos red zone offense. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that could be true. Um, it, Yeah, it, it, it's, it's tough to know until you actually see it. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the the passing touchdown means he hurts the red zone offense. Like they could have just had him hand the ball off a lot in the red zone, and that's where the touchdowns came from. After he led them on that whole drive, maybe like it's it's tough to say, but he he could hurt the the red zone offense. And you know, having he he doesn't have as strong as of an arm as Locke does, so you know, not being able to make those tight window throws in the red zone. Uh, might be a little bit tougher for Bridgewater than Locke. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Cool. Um, so then, and we, we, we just talked about, uh, and again, this is the narrative kind of coming out of camp. So this is kind of like an extra thing. Um, and you already kind of refuted it. I just want to touch on it just a second. One of the big complaints about Teddy Bridgewater the first two days of camp was he's just throwing checkdowns. Obviously, you just mentioned he threw deep 11% of the time last year. I know when you and I have talked about it before, you also told me that he's basically, he's accurate in the intermediate area of the field. So, like, to me, like, if he's throwing checkdowns in camp against the Broncos defense that's loaded at corner, like, I'm not necessarily worried about it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you there. Yeah, like, last year, um, if we look at, if we look at, like, the different um, categories that you can make a throw, so, like, behind the line of scrimmage, uh, he ranked 14th, Drew Locke ranked 24th. So Bridgewater is there. And then short passes, which is zero to 10 yards from the line of scrimmage, Bridgewater ranked fourth. And that's a lot of that is just accuracy, like his accuracy, putting the ball right where the receiver needs it to turn it into yak. And he had those receivers with Curtis Samuel and DJ Moore in Carolina last year. And he can have those receivers in Denver this year too. And so he ranked 20 spots ahead of Drew Locke for um, short throws. Medium throws, they were about even, but Locke uh, got, has the advantage there. So those are the those are the 10 to 20-yard throws. And then the deep throws, Bridgewater was better at too. So Bridgewater at the, at the four main areas of the field that you can throw to, he's better at three of them. 
and and I don't know how much you've looked at this, but this came up when I was talking with Seth Galina, actually a couple times with uh, Locke, is one of my big concerns with Locke coming out of last year was that Locke was really, really bad at uh, horizontal leading throws. Um, Because when I talked to Seth the first time, it was right before the Saints game last year because Seth's a big Saints mm-hmm. fan. And obviously, you know, Kendall Hinton, neither one of us saw that coming. But Oh, yeah. But uh, but he mentioned he was he he looked it up and he told me like the Broncos are abysmal at throwing horizontal leading throws with Locke and they basically never do it. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding out of camp is they've been doing it more, but that's also another one of those areas like Bridgewater's better than him at that. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah. It, it goes back to the uh, the accuracy stuff accuracy stuff that I was talking to earlier. Yeah. Like like Bridgewater has has made just more throws that are accurate and leading their receiver, especially horizontally across the field. Like that's what you think of when you think of Judy, like running like a 10 yard in or something and getting the ball in his hands. So I I definitely think he would be better at those horizontal throws. And just in case, like, again, for listeners, a lot of listeners hear all this and they're probably thinking that we're, we're saying that Teddy Bridgewater is going to be, you know, the savior of the franchise. I personally, again, and, and those listening know I'm on this, this, like this podium. Passing on Justin Fields was stupid, like in my opinion. And again, tell me if I'm wrong here, but like it sucks because I really liked Patrick Sertain. But the thing is, Sertan can, if Sertan turns into a Hall of Fame player, he may still look like the wrong decision if Justin Fields does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, so yeah, I, I wasn't as um, mad at the Broncos for passing on Justin Fields as I think the rest of the analytics community was. Um, and part of that was because I thought they would get either Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson this off season, or even they could have even got Matthew Stafford. I know they were in, in talks for that too, but they ended up getting none of them. So now the pick is starting to look uh, not as good to me. I mean, I'm sure they can have a great secondary, but it, it probably wasn't worth passing on Justin Fields. Cause yeah, like, like Bridgewater limits the ceiling of this, of this team he only can be an average quarterback at best. And like, I I've been talking him up. I've just, I've just been saying he's, he's, he's better than Locke, but he only can be an average quarterback at best. What Justin Fields can do is he can give you that franchise quarterback potential. Um, but the, the Broncos are, have been looking for ever since Manning retired, but they haven't been able to find it yet. Um, and so that, that was probably a mistake. Uh, if you're, if you're looking back at it now in hindsight, and, and you mentioned Stafford, and I want to talk about that a little bit because you are probably the biggest Stafford fan I know. Um, and, I, and again, I'm from Michigan, so I've, I've kept up with Stafford his whole career. Um, I, li- I remember, and again, I'm older than you. I, I'm fairly certain. Uh, I remember watching Stafford when he was a freshman at Georgia, and he mm-hmm. was playing in the bowl game, and I was like, man, he's pretty good. And again, the Broncos at the time had Cutler, so like at the time, like it didn't even seem like it was ever going to be a concern. It's kind of weird, but... The Broncos, like my understanding based on like, and there was conflicting reports. So, you know, who knows for sure. But my understanding was the Broncos kind of like stepped away from the Stafford deal in part because the Lions wanted Jerry, Judy, Drew Locke, and then picks. Do you think that was like the right call given like Stafford's age or was that like a bad decision? Like, and again, like taking all the potential what ifs out of it down the road, because I guess like that's, Mm -hmm. and I know it's hard to do. But because I like you, I did rationalize passing on Justin Fields because of Aaron Rodgers. Because I can't again, and I'm sure you saw it on Twitter. I was ardent in my belief that the Broncos were going to get Aaron Rodgers until they didn't, and I still yep. think they might get him next year. 
But like at the time that Stafford asked for the trade, we didn't even know Rodgers was going to become available. Yep. Do you think like yeah. in a vacuum that decision made sense or should they have made that deal? Yeah, it's 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 tough to say unless we know the exact uh compensation, but if it was like if it was the same package that the Rams gave the Lions where it was two firsts and Drew Locke instead of Jared Goff. I think that would have been the right decision to make for the Broncos. Um, because we, you, I mean, we've talked about this, like you look at, you look at the team and they're stacked at almost every level. They're probably going to have a top five defense. They, you know, they have great, they have great weapons and then their, their offensive line, you know, we'll, we'll see it. It, it, it probably won't be great, but, it can be like slightly below average or something. So if you throw a top 10 quarterback into that mix, they're, they can, you know, they, they become right up there with the Chiefs and the Bills in the AFC is probably the third best team. Um, but now that, you know, now that you're, you're entering the season with so much quarterback uncertainty, it's, it's really tough to say. And it, it really limits, I think, what the Broncos can do this year unless you get a lock breakout. And that's my fear, uh, because, yeah. and again, I am not opti- Like Based on, I've talked to, I want to say, three different reporters at this point. Two of them kind of off the record so far, and then one of them I talked to on cover two. Based on, and again, maybe it changes over the next couple of weeks, but so far, no one has told me that a lock, a breakout is coming. Basically, mm-hmm. Locke has made a big enough jump to like potentially push Bridgewater. Locke is not about to turn into a Pro Bowl level player based on like what everybody's telling me, which mm-hmm. again, that's a huge concern. Um, kind of knowing that, uh, what do you think like a, a fair like range of outcomes really is for this Broncos team? Um, when I took to Football Outsiders, uh, Derek Klassen, uh, we kind of picked apart what Football Outsiders did for their like their projections, and and I don't know if mm-hmm. you looked at this. Their projections is they take their uh, DVOA and their DVR, like they take, sorry, they take their DVOA stat, they project it, they throw, uh, they throw it out 10,000 times, they simulate the NFL season, and then they share what the percentages are based on, you know, how the team performed. And according to their projections, the Broncos made the playoffs 45% of the time, which was the second best out of the AFC West. So like, I loved that, obviously. Uh, they actually made the the Super Bowl 4.9% of the chance, and people thought I was crazy when I first said that. I went back and looked. They actually win the Super Bowl. I want to say it was like 2% of the time, which seems crazy to me. Um, yeah, yeah that's really high. I'll take it, but like, that, seems, <laughs> that seems nuts. Um, but then 0-5 uh, to five wins 12% of the time, 6, point, six to 8 wins 33% of the time, 9-11, to 11, 38% of the time, and then 12 plus 17 um, so kind yep. of all over the all over the map, really. Um, but based on like what you've seen and kind of what you know, what do you think? Yeah. So we'll do a we'll do a choose your own adventure here. Let's say they, you know, depending on which quarterback they pick. So let's say they pick Teddy Bridgewater. Um, I think their their win range would be between seven and ten wins. They hit their absolute rock bottom last year with five wins. Uh, bad quarterback play and injuries led to that. So if you get, if you stay healthier, you get the upgrade at quarterback play. Uh, you you can win seven to ten wins with Bridgewater on this on this team. Um, but then if you if you go down the lock path, I think you you start to get into that six six win range at minimum. 
But then if he has this breakout that so many Broncos fans are hopeful for, and maybe it happens based on the, the clean pocket stuff we were talking about, this could be an 11-12 win team. So Locke gives them a huge range of outcomes. Bridgewater gives them, you know, between between 7 and 10, like a fringe playoff team. Locke will give them no playoffs another year, picking in the top 10 or 12. Or, you know, you 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 make the playoffs and you have the possibility of um, even winning a playoff game and moving on. So I'm not going to ask you what Brett Rippon would give them. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, so realistically, though, this, this year's team should almost – almost definitely has to be better than last year's team unless they have injuries at like a similar rate. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the weird thing about the Broncos this year is a lot of teams are so dependent on their quarterback. And if their quarterback goes down, they win like four or five games, but they, they have backups that are competing with each other now, you know, in training camp and stuff like that. So even if they suffer the um, unluckiness of losing their starting quarterback, their backup should be able to give a slightly worse level of play, but not enough to really derail the Broncos season. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to see which quarterback they end up picking, how the backup quarterback responds. And then, yeah, how many games that, that starting quarterback ends up winning. So then the kind of the last question I have for you before I let you go, cause I know I'm keeping you. Uh, and I, and I know I didn't, I, again, I apologize. Cause I don't think I gave you like really much headway with this. Vic Fangio, like kind of like on that note, like whenever we talk quarterbacks, like whenever I talk quarterbacks, one of the things you always hear is, well, it's a shame the coaching staff's going to hurt them. And like the narrative about Fangio right now is basically he's a good defensive coordinator, but he's a garbage head coach. And Mm -hmm. part of that, and part of that goes to game management stuff. And I think that that there's definitely some fairness to that because he's had some issues with game management situations, but also, and again, like I'm not trying to make an excuse for him, but he's also had Joe Flacco, Brandon Allen, Drew Locke. Like he's had pretty brutal quarterbacks to this point. Like, mm-hmm. do you do you think it's fair to kind of like write the book on him like that, or do you think like he could surprise people? Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't write the book. I I, I do think if if Vangio's on the hot seat this year, um, and then they don't figure it out, they go like they go six and eleven or something because they couldn't figure out their quarterback play, and he gets fired. I think a lot of teams would consider him to be their their head coach just because of that 2019 or 2018 Bears defense that was almost like historically great um and it was so innovative what he did and stuff like that. So I I you know I think I don't know if he should necessarily be on the hot seat because it hasn't been fair for him given what you said about him not having a quarterback, but I definitely do think he is on the hot seat and that's why this decision coming out of training camp will be so important for the Broncos. If the Broncos do can Fangio, is there anybody that you've kind of like, and again, I don't know if you've looked at this at all, so I apologize, mm-hmm. is there, but is there any candidates that kind of look to you like they could be a potential good cor- uh, head coach next year? Yeah. I mean, Brian Dable was the big surprise of this head coaching cycle. Um, I think, I think everyone was pretty surprised when, he didn't get a head coaching job and he stayed as the offensive coordinator of the bills. And, you know, Josh Allen contributed so much of his breakout success to Dable and Dable is known to have a good understanding of analytics. He's mentioned that you don't necessarily have to run the ball um, to have success with play action. 
you know, he likes to pass more than anyone in the league. So I definitely think that could be a good choice for the next Broncos head coach if we get in that situation. Do you think the Lions uh, win the North this year? <laughs> um, I, I think I think we have a better chance of um, going 0-17 than, than winning the NFC North. Uh, if that's again, I know this is not even Broncos. If that's the case, do you think that they're gonna, or do you want them to go after a quarterback in this year's draft? I don't know if you've looked at it all. Oh, oh, it's a hundred percent. My mind's been made up since the day that the Jared Goff, Matthew Stafford trade happened. I don't see Jared Goff as a long-term solution in Detroit, um, and I'm I'm not hoping that um, that or sorry, I am hoping that they do have a the number one pick next year and are able to take. A quarterback. Uh, thank you so much. I I really appreciate you coming on. Um, guys, if you do not follow Tage on Twitter, go do it. Um, I have learned so much from him over the short time that like I have known him. So again, there there are very few people that I do this where I say like I cannot recommend following you enough, but I mean it. So again, thank you for everything you've taught me so far. And thank you for coming on. Cause I really appreciate it. Um, and go read his stuff guys. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. Um, and then, yeah, again, I, I owe you a thank you too. Just following you has taught me so much more about the Broncos. Um, and I just think that they're, they're going to be one of the most interesting teams to keep an eye on this year, just because of the potential of this team. And then the fact that the quarterback position is still in flux. So yeah, I I really appreciate like you you know being able to basically cover the Broncos without actually being like inside the the media and like being at the training camp. But the fact that you've been able to put out so much information and write all these articles and stuff like that has been really impressive. Um, and then yeah, I, I had a great time coming on this this podcast today. Um, so so thank you for that too.